Have you ever been in a situation and had the thought, I actually might die here today? We recently observed the anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and I learned about a woman named Linda Gronland from New York. She was an attorney, an accomplished sailor and scuba diver, a certified EMT, and she held a brown belt in karate. On September 11, 2001, Linda was on United Flight 93. The plane had been hijacked, and the passengers knew that two other planes had already been flown into the Twin Towers in New York. Before the plane went down, she called her younger sister, Elsa, and left this message. Elsa, it's Lynn. Um, I only have a minute. I'm on United 93, and it's been hijacked uh, by terrorists who say they have a bomb. Apparently, they uh, have flown a couple of planes into the World Trade Center already, and it looks like they're going to take this one down as well. Mostly, I just wanted to say I love you, and I'm going to miss you. <laughs> and, and please give my love to my dad. And... <sighs> Mostly, I just love you, and I just wanted to tell you that. I don't know if I'm going to be able to tell you that again or not. Um, all my stuff is in the safe. The, uh, the safe is in my closet in my bedroom. The combination is you push C for clear and then 0913, and then, uh, and then it should, and maybe pound, and then it should unlock. I love you, and I hope I can talk to you soon. Bye. Sadly, none of the people on that flight survived when it crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The average person alive today has probably not been in a situation like that, where death could happen at any moment. But you're about to hear from someone who has. Tara was at home with her wife, Catherine, and their six-year-old daughter, Hazel. They also had five dogs. They all survived, including the dogs. But as it was happening, they didn't know what the outcome would be. What they feared was drowning. Because a Category 5 hurricane was coming, and their home was on an island in the Bahamas. Real people? in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Before we get into today's story, you're about to hear from a couple of our sponsors. Sponsors play a big role in my being able to bring you these amazing stories. But I completely understand that some listeners will prefer to not hear sponsor messages, and that's fine. If that's you, 
I invite you to consider signing up for What Was That Like Plus to get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and a lot more. You can do this by going to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus. And when you're there, use the promo code plus to get one free month. If you're an Apple listener, it's super easy. All you need to do is click try free right there at the top of your feed. So now a quick word from our sponsors, followed by today's What Was That Like story. As a podcaster, there's nothing more gratifying than being able to make a difference in the lives of real people. If you like seeing that happen and you enjoy true crime podcasts, I have a show you're going to love. It's called Proof. If you heard the first season of Proof, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This show is co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed. She's also an attorney. And Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. They created season one by investigating the story of two young men in Georgia who were serving life sentences for supposedly murdering their friend. These men had spent 25 years in prison, and on December 8, 2022, based on evidence that was unearthed by Susan and Jacinda for the podcast, they were released. Can you imagine being in prison for 25 years and then getting released because of a podcast? And now the second season of Proof, called Murder at the Warehouse, is being released. Susan and Jacinda are digging into this new case about Renee Ramos in Manteca, California. Her body was found under a pile of debris, and her boyfriend and another man were arrested and convicted. But things don't seem to add up. Did investigators actually ignore tips that pointed to other suspects? Could this be another case where an innocent person has spent years locked up in prison? It's all going to come out on this new season. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof Murder at the Warehouse wherever you get your podcasts. You were born and raised in the Bahamas. Have you had experience with hurricanes before? I assume you must have. I've had experience with hurricanes my entire life. My parents have had experience with hurricanes their entire lives. Grandparents. It's just the thing when you live in the Bahamas, you deal with hurricanes. It's part of life. Yeah. It's part of life. But this time you kind of topped your previous experience. Tenfold. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Can you describe your family at the time when this happened? Who was in your family? Uh, so it was myself, my wife, Catherine, and our six-year-old daughter, Hazel, and we had five dogs. Five dogs. And I know my listeners' ears perked up just then thinking, oh, hey, five dogs. What kind of dogs were they? We had four dachshunds, so sausage dogs, and then we had uh, we had one medium-sized dog, which in the Bahamas we refer to mutts as pot cakes. So we had a husky pot cake mix kind of dog. All right. And your house at the time, how was it constructed? We had a concrete block home in the Bahamas. That's generally the way to go if you can afford to do so. You, you build a concrete block home. Wooden roof, metal, shingle construction, elevated because we were near the water. Nice, solid, uh, hurricane-proof windows, you know, the best ones on the market that are supposed to stand up to 150-mile-an-hour wind, all built for hurricanes. 
really, I mean, you had everything in place. You did everything you could yes. in advanced preparation. Before this happened, were you ever nervous or apprehensive about hurricanes or just it's just something that happens? No, you're always nervous and apprehensive about hurricanes because you know that they can, you know, cause severe damage. It's it's always nervous. Whenever there's one coming, you prepare, you get ready, you do everything you can. You're guaranteed something's going to get wrecked and you just you're prepared to deal with the aftermath. Well, I know hurricane season for the Atlantic starts June 1. What are your standard practices at that time to prepare specifically for the upcoming months? June 1 is, you know, a normal summer in the Bahamas. We rarely see severe storms uh, in June and July. Very, very rarely. We'll get a tropical storm. It blows through in a day. The kids are out of school. You clean up your yard and that's it. It's, it's a, it's a non-event. It's not till August, September and October when you really start to pay attention and start to worry about it. When you know one is coming, do you go to the store and find that the shelves are empty from the water and stuff like that? I mean, that's what happens here in Florida. Yes. If you wait last minute, if you try to go to a, a grocery store or hardware store 24 hours before we're expected to start having wind, you're out of everything and you're out of luck. So we, we always would prepare three days ahead at the very least so that we weren't stuck in lines or didn't have the things that we wanted to have. How far in advance did you know that Hurricane Dorian was going to be a really big one? I'd say about five or six days out. At that point, it was, oh, wow, this is this is strong. This is like a Category 4 now. And then the forecasts are saying it's going to be a 5. Oh, that's, yeah, that's pretty bad. And 5 is as high as it goes, right? So, And at that point, it's still way out there. Like five days out. Those uh, spaghetti models that you see all over the TV, they're all over the place. So you're just, you kind of, you're watching and hoping that it's going to turn or move or that spaghetti model that says it's going to stay out to see, that's the right one. <laughs> yeah, everyone hopes, right? Yeah. Everyone hopes. Do some people actually evacuate the islands when they see something like that coming? Yes. Yeah. A lot of expats, foreigners, second homeowners, a lot of those folks will leave in the three days ahead. They'll get on a flight and get out. You got word that Dorian was bound for your location and was still really big. What was your plan in those, like the, the few days in advance of that? In the few days of advance of that, we started with, okay, groceries. Let's stock up on the things that we need to have. Let's make sure we've got the water we need. Let's get the car filled up with gas. Let's get the jugs for the uh, generator for after the storm filled up with gas. Start thinking about where we're going to put our patio furniture and move our potted plants. As Dorian approached, were you more concerned about the wind or the possibility of water rising? We were worried about the wind. The wind was always the fear. With hurricanes in general, the wind is all, always the fear unless you live on the beach. If you live on the beach, that's an entirely different uh, experience. Most Bahamians do not build their houses on the beach because of that reason. So tell us about what happened when it started. You, you pretty much saw that your preparations were all just pointless, right? Before it hit Grand Bahama Island and Freeport where we were, uh, it hit the island of Abaco, which is about 100 miles away. The storm was moving exceptionally slowly. 
So we're it's barely moving forward at two, three, max four miles per hour. Which is a bad thing. Which is very bad. The longer it takes to go through, the more damage there is. And so it, it kind of went through Abaco and there were Facebook videos and images and stories and they didn't lose cellular signal, which has never happened before in a storm. Yeah, you have a storm, you lose cell signal, no one knows what's going on until after. This time, there were videos of people as they were, as the roof was pulling off the house in Abaco. And there was a lot of water and the whole town was flooded and you see people, cars floating by. And so the, the images were terrifying at that point. But we were already at a point of, okay, we're hunkered down. We're ready for it. Can we make a big change now? Is that, what are we going to do? We've got five dogs. Where are we going to go? So it hit Abaco first. And did you know, based on its speed, how much time did you have before it would get to you? We knew we had a good 12 hours before it got bad. Like the wind would start before that. And it already, we had already started to have like tropical storm force winds when it was over Abaco. But it was at the speed that it was moving for us to have really bad wind. And when I say really bad, I mean like a hundred mile per hour. (laughs) It was going to be, it was going to be a few hours before we got there. But we're already hunkered down. It's late in the afternoon. There are no shelters on the island that would take us with five dogs. So it would mean leaving our five dogs behind, not an option, never was going to be an option. And we were just kind of focused on the positive. We're okay. We're safe. We've had hurricanes in this house before. We had had Hurricane Matthew three years before. We were fine. Okay. We're going to be fine. We're going to stay here. Looking back on it now, can you evaluate on how much of that was realistic thinking versus how much was optimistic thinking? It was probably 50-50. Yeah, 50% of it was, I'm just going to talk myself into the fact that we're going to be okay while I'm actually terrified. And then 50% of it was actually logical. The the logistics of Abaco, the, how high the island is, the way that the island's positioned along the edge of the Atlantic Ocean versus the way that Grand Bahama sits on a bank. All of those things come into play with the way a hurricane would interact with the land and what we could expect as far as weather. Take us from the time the storm surge came into your home. When did you first see that? We started having hurricane force winds 1030, August 31st, 2019. And so we went to bed listening to the storm. We got up a few times. As the night wore on, check that every three-hour update. What's it doing? Where is it going? Is it slowing down? Is it going to make that turn that we're desperately wanting so that we don't get the worst of it? And we got up around 4 o'clock and looked outside, and the water, our entire backyard, our entire street was gone underwater. We had been up three hours before, and everything was fine. 4 o'clock in the morning, the water was, we were already surrounded. That also means you're kind of cut off from any help, too. Yeah, at that point, we're it's it's we're already past help. There's no one that can come out in that kind of wind and that kind of water without endangering themselves. At that point, were there any agencies or people offering to uh, you know being able to rescue anyone anyway? No, not there's nothing. You are you were stuck. You are on your own. Whatever decision you have made about where you're going to be at that point. That's it till it's done. When it first started to come in the house, 
for me, it was sort of, okay, we're, we're going to, we're going to have water in the house. We're going to have ankle deep water. That's really annoying. We're going to have to have house repairs. Okay. Let's see what we can save. Let's get these, let's get these photo albums up onto the highest shelf we can in the house, make sure they're safe. Uh, let's try using some sandbags to kind of slow some of the water coming into the house. At that point, it was still, we're not in peril danger yet. It's more like things are going to get broken. We're going to have to make repairs. At what point did it cross over to the feeling that you were in danger? Within an hour. Within an hour of the water first coming in the house, it had risen another three or four inches. It was rising really fast. And then the whole house had water in it. And then the sewage system started backing up. And then the house was not pleasant to be in smell or anything else. And then it was, oh, shit, we're, we're in a lot of trouble now. The water's, What's going to happen if the water doesn't stop? You had mentioned in what you sent me that fear of drowning outweighed logical thought. Can you elaborate on that? At the time, I thought everything that I was thinking was logical. The, uh, the ability to look back on it now in hindsight and realize that it was not logical has come from years of talk therapy. At the time, I thought every decision we were making was absolutely thought out clearly. There were pros and cons, the consequences of our decisions, like everything was, we were pushing through and we were going to be okay, even though we were terrified. And so at the time, I thought it was completely logical, all the decisions that we were making. And then you made a decision that was not logical, looking back on it. Looking back on it, it's not logical now. The water kept rising. We got to a point that we were sitting on top of our kitchen countertops trying to stay dry. We had our six-year-old and three of the dogs bundled in wet blankets on our kitchen island. And once the water reached the top of the countertops, it started to be, are we, are we going to drown inside of our house? The water's not stopping. We're going to run out of breathing room. We have to get out of this house. We're going we're gonna to drown. And then it was, if the water reaches a certain height so that all of our windows and doors are underwater, there's going to be a pressure difference between the inside and the outside. What if we can't get the windows open? What if we can't get the door open? And that's when the tunnel vision and the, the fear, fight or flight, not logical thought kicked in. We have to get out of the house right now. So you're in your house, your cement block house, and you made the decision to leave the house. You know, as I think about this, my dogs won't go out to pee when it's raining. Can you describe the process of <laughs> how do you get five dogs to leave the relative safety of the house when there's a hurricane outside? The blessing was that four of them were really little. So all four of our dachshunds were 10, 11 pounds. So you can manhandle that. Our mutt, our pot cake mix uh, is 50 pounds. Not nearly as easy to manhandle. So how did you do that? We all uh, went out through a bedroom window that we were able to open. We shoved floating things and and everything we thought that we needed to be okay outside, some things to stay together. We used uh, extension cords to tie ourselves together so that we couldn't like float away from each other. We had a floating mattress that we kind of pushed out of a window. 
And then we kind of just one by one procession, get one dog out, get the next dog out and, and threw them on top of the mattress, which basically was a raft, not a very good raft because it was sitting two or three inches below the water, but it was floating to get our larger dog out was not easy. I mean, I was on the outside. My wife, Catherine was on the inside. She's pushing. I'm pulling. The dog was fighting because the dog had a better idea how stupid the idea was than we did. And finally we were able to get her out of the window. Did you all have life jackets? No life jackets. We didn't own a boat. We didn't need life jackets. We were four feet elevated from ground level. The water was never going to get that high. The water's never gotten that high before. So did you all fit on the floating things or were you in the water? We were in the water. So we had our daughter with a pool float around her waist as her, that was her life jacket. And the five dogs were on the mattress and Catherine and I are treading water, floating, holding onto patio furniture. That's really not floating, but is not sinking. And how were the dogs handling this? Were they, obviously they must've been stressed out, but what were they doing? Very stressed out, not wanting, not holding still, obviously, crawling back and forth across the mattress, falling off, having to be retrieved, falling off again and swimming in the wrong direction, having to be retrieved. It was a constant battle of keep everyone's head above water. How long were you outside? It felt like hours. It felt like hours of fighting the waves and the wind and the, keeping together and not losing the dogs and, and our daughter screaming to the top of her lungs. Uh, we were outside for 30 minutes, longest 30 minutes of my life. Did Hazel, your daughter, object to going outside at all? Or she's just, hey, the grownups know what they're doing. The grownups know what they're doing until we got outside. Yeah, kids have to trust the parents, obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you see any other people while you were outside? No, no. We, our closest neighbor was 600 feet away. They had a second story. To their house, we did not. We had a, a ranch, single story. At one point, we considered swimming or trying to swim to the neighbor's house with their second story. We decided really quickly that either we would get separated or we would all drown if we tried to swim it. Even, I mean, our daughter was a really good swimmer at six years old. She could dive in a scuba diving pool down 12 feet at six years old. She was a really good swimmer. But there was no way we were going to fight the wind and the, and the waves to get to that house without all drowning. What made you decide to finally say, okay, we've got to go back in the house? I went under more than once. I couldn't keep my head up. I couldn't, couldn't keep checking on the dogs. I couldn't make sure that Hazel was stable. I couldn't make sure that my wife was okay. I went under and inhaled salt water more than once. And the, the second time that I came up, I just, I looked at Catherine and I said, we have to go back in. When we went back in, we had about three, four feet still of, of breathing space. So a uh, nine-foot ceiling. So water height would have been about five feet, six feet. You couldn't stand in there. You were still swimming inside the house. We had to dive back in. The window was underwater when we went back in. The, the window that we had decided to go out of was our master bedroom window. And our master bed was floating. The bed was floating. The mattress and box springs were floating in the middle of the room. So when we got back in, it was, okay, that's where our daughter and the five dogs are going to go. That's their mattress. They're safer there for now until we figure it out. Catherine and I had to wait around inside the 
inside the bedroom while we started to figure it out. The only option was the attic. If we stayed inside the house, we were fearful that it was still the same fear. We're, we're going to run out of breathing room. The water's going to get higher than the ceiling, and then we're going to drown. So the attic was the only option. You guys must be exhausted at this point. Yeah, completely exhausted. Um, going on full-out adrenaline for uh, six hours at that point with no with no break. Just adrenaline-fueled. I had like three bites of a dry piece of bread that I managed to not really swallow at one point that morning while the water was rising. No food, no water. What's the access to the attic? How do you get there? We had an attic ladder built in to our master bedroom closet for part of construction for we're going to use that area as extra storage or if someone needs to fix something, they can get up there easily. So this is just one of those things that's in the ceiling. You pull on a chain yes. and it comes down on the yes. ladder. Okay. Yep. And we had that open, actually. And whether it's an old wives' tale or an actual thing, we always grew up, if you have an attic, you need to open the attic so that the air can pass through and not create pressure in the attic and blow your roof off. I have absolutely no idea if that's a reasonable engineering thing or a Bahamas thing, but we always open our attic when there's a storm. So the ladder was open, the ladder was down, ready for us. It would have been impossible if we hadn't opened that ahead of time to get in there. What would have made it impossible? I mean, I know you'd be opening it down into the water. Yeah, so we would have had to wait until the water was high enough, so that much closer to the ceiling, to be able to reach to get it pulled down. And then we would have had to fight with it without the ability of having our feet on solid ground to get it down and open for, for all of us to get in. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Here's a what would you do question. From now on, every day at 5 p.m., an hour goes by and it's still 5 p.m. So you get an extra full hour in your day. What would you do with that hour of free time? For me, do I start writing that book I've been thinking about? Start learning a new language? Check in with some people I haven't talked to in a while? Seems like everyone wishes there was more time. The question is, time for what? How do you prioritize? Well, guess what? Therapy can help you figure out what really matters to you so you can do more of those things. Talking with a professional therapist can help you answer some of those internal questions, and that can empower you to actually be the best version of yourself. You've heard me and a lot of my guests talking about the benefits of therapy here on the podcast, and maybe you've been thinking about checking it out. If that's you, then give BetterHelp a try. You can do it from home in your pajamas if you want, because it's all online, and you can fit it to your specific schedule. You just answer a few questions, get matched with a licensed therapist, and you're on your way. And you can even get started right now with a discount. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WhatWas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash WhatWas. When's the last time you took a $10 bill, walked into your bathroom, and flushed it down the toilet? Well, for me, it was about three weeks ago. Okay, I didn't literally send cash into the local sewer system, but I might as well have, because I was paying for a subscription that I forgot about and wasn't even using. And the only way I knew about it was because I signed up for Rocket Money. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending and it helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. So you can immediately see all of your subscriptions listed right there in one place. When I saw that list, there were things listed that I didn't even know what they were. You know how it is. You sign up for a free trial and then you end up not using the thing and you forget about it. But you still keep paying for it. With Rocket Money, I just make a few clicks and they cancel it for me. I don't even have to make a phone call. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash what was. That's rocketmoney.com slash what was. Rocketmoney.com slash what was. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. We had packed a, what they call a bug out bag. So some food and, um, and clothes and important documents uh, in case you have to be evacuated. Except there's no evacuation coming at this point. And the bag with the clothes was completely saturated and the documents inside the bag were completely saturated. It wasn't a waterproof bag. The food bag, cooler bags are waterproof. So that had food in it. But all of those things were packed as the water was coming in the house. We never packed a bug out bag ahead of time. We'd never needed one before. We'd never contemplated the idea of having to be evacuated. Do you recall as you're, as you're floating in your bedroom and thinking about what to do, what was the smell? It was raw sewage. <laughs> The smell in the house, once the septic system had backed up from the flood, the inside of the house was pure sulfur. It was horrendous. It cut your breath. If you took a deep breath, you'd cough because it was it was so strong. And can you describe the noise level? I know wind makes a lot of noise when there's such high winds just outside the window. Was it noisy inside the house? The contrast between outside and inside was there was a it was a big difference. So outside, it was really, really loud, and we had to shout to each other to hear each other over the wind and the waves. When we came back in, suddenly it was quiet. I mean, yeah, you could still hear the wind, and you could still hear the roof creaking and the you know waves knocking into the house, but we weren't shouting at each other to speak to each other inside of the house. So once we got the dogs and, and Hazel situated on the bed, and we felt like reasonably stable, 
we decided that Kathenberg is going to go retrieve these bags because we were going to have to go to the attic. That was our food. We wanted to make sure we had, you know, our important stuff. So she swam back to the kitchen to get those and bring them back to the master. I know at some point during this, you asked Hazel how she was doing. What was her state of mind? She was still crying, very upset, very distraught about having been outside. And now we're back inside and what are we going to do? And it's dangerous. And she's terrified. And she asked me for her glasses. And I hadn't even realized she'd lost them. Does she always wear glasses? They were reasonably new. So she had just gotten them that summer before. And she was very proud of these glasses. And she loved her glasses. So, And they weren't on her face. We had to assume that she had lost them at some point, either while we were outside or when we were trying to dive back into the house. They weren't floating, as far as I could tell, in the debris in the bedroom. But the lost glasses were just her six-year-old way of expressing terror. She lost her mind because we couldn't find her glasses. The dining room chairs made their way from our dining room on one side of the house to our master bedroom on the other side of the house with the water. So we were able to grab a couple of those and push those low enough in the water to stand on. And our weight, if evenly distributed, kept the legs of the chair on the ground. So we were able to stop treading water and stand for a few minutes. It was that that just that tiny bit of... I can make my heart rate go down just a little so that I can try to start thinking clearly. There's so much mixed in the water. Everything that had been on shelves had all float- floated off. Anything that had been inside of a drawer was floating because a piece of furniture had upended because of the water. And uh, once we got those chairs underneath us, I looked down and there was a red can of Coke floating next to me. And I grabbed it and it was intact. And I thought about it for half a second. Well, should I drink this? It's been floating in sewage. Yeah, I don't think it matters at this point. <laughs> it's hot. Wasn't Didn't come out of the refrigerator. came out of a cupboard somewhere. And I don't think I've ever tasted anything that good in my life. <laughs> we all, we, we shared it around. Everybody had some of it. Hazel had more of it than Catherine or I did. It was like the first sugar our body had seen in four hours at that point, food of any kind. So at this point, it looks like the attic was going to be the only option, but you were particularly terrified of that. What was your thinking? I was still on the, we're going to drown inside the house without any air. We're going to get our heads against the ceiling and we're going to run out of air. For me, the attic was that we can't get out of the attic. There's no dormer windows. There's no exterior access. There's no tool to cut a hole in the sheet metal covered, covered roof. If we go up there and the water keeps rising because it is still rising very quickly, we can't get out. But we didn't have any other option at that point. That, that was the last option to keep our heads above water, even if it was only buying us hours. Now, I found it interesting that at this point, you're considering that that's your only option. But you also remember when you went outside that you thought that was a logical option and you proceeded, but it turned out to be a bad decision. You made a phone call. Yeah. So like I said, we, we maintained cellular signal through the middle of a Category 5 hurricane. It's never happened before. We had been keeping the cell phones inside uh, plastic bags, inside a Ziploc bag. 
So they were dry and they were working. So we took it out, turned it on, pressed the button, and FaceTime worked like normal. And we phoned uh, Catherine's sister, Charlotte, and her wife, who were our closest relatives. They were living in Connecticut. So we connected FaceTime from the Bahamas in our flooded house, thousand miles away to Connecticut. For them to get a, I mean, they're sitting in their dry house. I mean, they knew about the hurricane. They probably were wondering how you guys were doing, right? We had been in contact with them off and on as the water was rising. So they did know that we were in a bad situation. We had been FaceTiming with Catherine, Tara, and Hazel prior to the hurricane about preparations that were being done. Catherine's sister-in-law, Patty. But then we got a call from Catherine saying that water was coming in through Hazel's bedroom walls. Yes, we were all alarmed and concerned. And then next we got another phone call that the water had reached their car and Hazel was sitting on the kitchen island with the dogs floating around on cushions. But they still must have been surprised to get that phone call, especially not just a phone call, but a FaceTime call where they could see that you guys are floating in your bedroom with the water being that high already. They, uh, they told us after the fact that they'll never forget the look of terror on our faces. In the next phone call we got from them, Charlotte told them that they needed to go into their attic. Tara, who is usually calm and collected, was just beyond fear. The look in her eyes is something that I'll never forget. The fear of death was right there. And usually, you know, trying to keep your family safe, she was realizing how dangerous things were at this point. They said they were going to shut off their phones and would call when they could. The reason you were calling them was to just get other adult opinions, like, is this really the best thing we should do, right? Yeah, that that's exactly what it was. We had been talking to them about what we were going to do and what was the plan and what should we do and what are we gonna, how are we going to be okay. And after having made the decision to go outside and realizing that it was such a bad decision, we needed someone else to tell us what to do. And they were in agreement. Yeah, the, the, we were out of options. No one was going to be able to come for us. We didn't know how long it was going to be before it got better. If it got better, were we still going to drown? Was this the last time we were ever going to speak to them? So with the decision made, where we're going to go to the attic, we have to get to the attic. Now we have to get the three of us, the five dogs, and the two bags into the attic with you know, water too high to stand in and rising fast. Catherine went into the attic first, taking one bag. I followed her taking the other. We left Hazel and the five dogs on the bed. Got everything up there, sort of figured out where we were. It's very dark. What are we going to sit on? There's cross bracing every two or three feet. There's, it's not like an attic in New England where it's wide open in the middle and you just store stuff in it. It's an attic because it's the roof, the structure of the roof holding it up. There's no floor. It's just beams of wood and then insulation and sheetrock holding it. So if you step between the two beams, you're going to go through. And what was the height? I mean, you couldn't stand up, obviously, fully, right? We could. 
our roof in our attic was very tall, very big. It was a design feature that the architects that built the house decided was necessary for making sure that it was hurricane proof and the design that we wanted it to look like from the outside and all those things. So we had a, it was very tall in the middle, but then it tapered off to all four sides. So if you were a few feet from the outside of the house, you would hit your head, but standing in the middle, you had a lot of space. Catherine went up, I went up, we got the bags up. I went back down and got two dogs, two of the little dogs, and left Hazel with the other three. And we're calling back and forth to each other as we're doing this. And she can see us. We're in the master closet. She's in the master bedroom. And the only time she loses sight of us is when I go in the attic and we're calling down to her. It's okay. We're coming. This is what we're doing. Like word by word, minute by minute, helping her see us, even though we weren't there. I went up the ladder with a dog under each arm, wiggling, not easy, <laughs> gave them to Catherine, went back down. Yeah, your dogs may, after going outside, your dogs may have some trust issues here, right? They, they may have a little <laughs> bit of trust issues. We wouldn't have managed any of it if we had five large dogs. It was having the, the smaller dogs that made it manageable. Once I got uh, three of the little dogs upstairs, I got Hazel. Got Hazel off the bed, got her up the ladder, up to Catherine. We had two dogs left now in the bedroom whining for us because there was no person there with them now. The last little dog, I couldn't couldn't get him. Like he wouldn't, I don't know if he was asleep or he just was being stubborn or he was frightened. And I couldn't see him because the bed's floating above my head. So I'm calling, the dog's not responding. I call the large dog. She comes to me. Great. So we swim to the ladder. Now I have to get the 50 pound dog to climb a ladder because I can't carry her up there. So a lot of pushing, Catherine pulling from the top, climb the ladder, learn to climb the ladder right now. And she did. And at that point we had 24 inches, two feet of breathing space. The doorway between the master bedroom and master closet was rapidly disappearing. And I uh, made the last trip to get the last dog. I had to go under the doorway, like hold my breath and go under the water to get back into the other room. Finally got him off the bed he had to dive with me to go under the doorway and we all made it into the attic. It was really, really loud in the attic. Like it was loud, like outside loud. Every tree branch that hit the, the roof, every drop of rain that hit the roof, the wind pushing and all of the wood creaking as it pushed. It feels like at this time you may have gotten to a place where you can finally, you're safe for the moment. You can relax a little bit, but you have to stay on these cross beams. You can't just relax. How did you manage not going through the ceiling? We had a couple of Rubbermaid containers. They were empty. They were just stored up there because we didn't have anywhere else to put them. We would turn, we turned one of those upside down and kind of braced one side of each end on one of these beams. So it created kind of like a bench that you could sit on. We had a cardboard box that used to have a, an oscillating fan in it. We spread that out between the two beams. Of course, once cardboard's wet, it's not nearly stable anymore and we're soaking wet. We mashed down the air conditioned ducting. It's a big square 
silver ducting that you see in your attic from air condition. Uh, we kind of sat on that and flattened that out. There's probably less worry of Hazel stepping in between the beams and going through than the two of you as adults, right? We were we were worried about the dogs. Because oh, oh, especially the big one. Well, yeah, we can understand that we have to only walk on wood and we can explain that to our six year old. But we're not going to explain it to the the large dog who is not holding still and she's running back and forth exploring because now she feels safe. <laughs> Thankfully, her weight wasn't enough to go through. Packing the food bag was my job. Packing the clothes and the documents was Catherine's job. We did not consult each other on this process because we were running around in knee-deep water when we were doing it. When I opened our pantry to pack that bag, I was packing, believing I was going somewhere that was safe and I was going to need food for the next couple of days. I wasn't packing for the situation. My brain wasn't functioning the way it should. When we opened the bag, we found we had rice, uncooked rice. We had cans of food, but no can opener. We had a granola bar, a container of peanut butter, and a package of Ritz crackers. Did Catherine have anything to say about your packing decisions? We, it was a very brief, what, what are we going to do with this? I don't know. I wasn't thinking. <laughs> so you had a little bit to eat anyway. We had a little bit to eat. So we, uh, we shared one of the granola bars. We had some peanut butter and crackers. But we, we knew that that food had to last. And we didn't know how long that food had to last. I think that would be part of the stress, not knowing when this is going to end or how it's going to end. It seems like that would always be on your mind. Like, when is this going to be over? Yeah, there's, there's, there's no time frame it, to it. When we went into the attic, we lost all cellular signal. We had no access to information, couldn't talk to anybody. We were cut off. The last update we had about what the storm was doing said that it was crawling at barely a one mile per hour along the island. And it was possible that it might stop moving altogether. And it was possible that it was going to make a sharp turn and head out to sea. But at this point, you're completely, you, you have no idea what it's doing because you have no, no idea, no information. No, we had what it might do at 1130 a.m. that morning. And that was it. Once we settled and we started to have something to eat, we realized that we had no drinking water. And of course, the water in our house is salt water mixed with sewage. That's, that's not drinkable. And um, we realized that in the, the rush to move things from the kitchen to the attic, the bags, we didn't bring water. I remembered where I put the water. I had put the water in a high cabinet in the kitchen because the water was countertop height and it was going to float away. I put it in a cabinet in the kitchen. And I thought briefly about going back for it, go back down the attic ladder, swim across the living room with an 12 inches of breathing space gives me heart palpitations as I think about it. I, you know, I have no doubt that people are listening to this and getting those same feelings of stress. Like, no, don't do that. Yeah. More, more decisions. Should I make this decision? No, this seems like a bad decision, but I somehow concocted this idea that if I walked across the attic to the other side of the house where I knew the kitchen was, I could figure out where the cabinet was and then I could punch a hole in that sheet sheetrock, right? You just punch a hole in it, 
if I stand on it, it's going to fall through. If I punch a hole, I can reach in and I can grab the water. That's what I'm going to do. It didn't go as planned. (laughs) Two of the dogs insisted on coming with me. I had Catherine and Hazel stay where they were because I felt like moving Hazel at that point wasn't the best decision. And I wasn't convinced that one of us wasn't going to get knocked unconscious walking through the attic, hitting our head on a piece of wood somewhere. So I went to do this errand myself. And two of the dogs decided they were going to join me. I misjudged where I needed to punch the hole. I misjudged how much force I needed to punch the hole with. I fell in. I fell through the ceiling. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com slash start. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. I was in, I was in the kitchen. I had the kitchen location, right? And I had the, the location of where the cupboard was that had the water. But I misjudged how much force I needed to accomplish all of this. And when I reached, I overreached and I fell headfirst. And so then I found myself in the exact position I had been trying to avoid all along with water at the ceiling and 12 inches of breathing space. I didn't stop. Okay. I got to get out of here. Let's get the water, put the water in the attic. Let's get uh, the, oh, this thing that's floating here. Yep. I need that. Let me throw that. Oh, look, there's a dog bowl to put water in for the dogs. I want that too throw that back through the hole. And then I tried to pull myself back up into the attic and I couldn't. I didn't have the upper body strength to pull my weight. And I fell and I got hurt again. And I tried a few more times. I tried 
standing on the kitchen countertops and using the extra height to hoist myself. I tried pushing a piece of floating furniture, a chair onto the countertop that wouldn't go deep enough. When the adrenaline and the fight or flight hit me, how many hours after still my body still producing adrenaline, I forced my arms up into the attic at a different angle, bruised my ribs, scraped my back, did whatever I had to do to get out of the kitchen, and I was able to get back in the attic. And the two dogs that were with you? One had fallen in with me. Thankfully, it was the small one. <laughs> so um, I was able to push her back into the attic. The, uh, the larger dog slipped but didn't fall in. So everybody was back in the attic and we were, we had the water that we needed. Are all of you just soaking wet still at this point? Yep. Everyone's still wet and shivering now because suddenly it's cold. (laughs) The inside of the attic was so cold. We were again, lucky, lots of miracles in this story. Uh, We were lucky enough that there was a, a Rubbermaid container floating in our, in our closet full of winter clothes. Now, yes, we live in the Bahamas and we have actual winter clothes because we take vacation to go to the snow. When you live on the beach, you go to the snow for vacation. It's like people that live in the snow go to the beach, right? Exactly. It works both ways. So we had a, had a bin of dry winter clothes. And when I was in the kitchen, I found a bag, dry Ziploc bag that had one of Hazel's school uniforms in it. So we all got dry clothes. That's got to be... An emotional lift just to be dry. Yeah. Once the once the dry and the, the shivering stopped, because of course it's shock, it's not just temperature. So once our bodies kind of came down from that really long adrenaline high, we were more comfortable. Does your attic have any light coming into it or were you just in the dark up there? The only light we had would have been every so many feet along the eaves. It would have been like a, a vent for airflow. And the water hadn't covered that over yet. So we had a little bit of light coming in there. But it's still really dark. Even, you know, middle of the day, hurricanes got terrible cloud cover. Most of our windows are underwater below. So the amount of light coming from the attic ladder area is limited. We're just going to sit here and wait because there's there's nothing we can do. Be checking in on Hazel. She's got her little stuffed animal that she's been hanging on to for the entire time saturated and she's sitting and the dogs are she's you know rubbing the dogs and the dogs are comforting everyone we kind of shuffled around a couple of times because the sitting sleeping arrangements weren't comfortable they weren't very stable eventually we we managed to figure out how we were going to go about maybe getting some sleep we started to think about having our our dinner which again a couple of Ritz crackers and some peanut butter all before what would have been normally sunset. Because once the sun went, the tiny bit of light we had was gone. You couldn't move around. You couldn't see your hand an inch from your face. Did you have a flashlight? Thankfully, we did. One of the things that were floating around in the bedroom that we happened to grab was a flashlight. But we were really concerned about the fact that it had been floating in salt water. Salt water corrodes instantly. So... The fact that it was turning on was miraculous. We didn't expect it to last very long. So we would turn it on, have a quick look at whatever we needed to see. Where do I need to put my feet? Turn it off again. Trying to conserve the battery. 
the Rubbermaid bin that we had turned upside down to sit on, we turned right side up. And Hazel crawled inside of it with a wet pillow. That's where she stayed for 12 hours. I laid sort of haphazardly on the flattened ducting, which basically felt like if I moved too quickly, I was going to fall off it. And um, Catherine was able to sit and kind of lay on the exterior concrete block uh, wall of the house, which was visible in the attic. So concrete blocks, eight inches, right? So that was stable. That wasn't going anywhere. It's cement. So she sat on that with a couple of pillows, kind of narrow space to sit. And that's where we stayed. She was on, you know, that half of the house and I was quite a few feet away. And then Hazel was perched another few feet away just because of the the way the bracing was and where we could set up that was reasonably stable. The other issue is bathroom use. Can you talk about how you figured that out? We didn't have a random bucket. Would have been a lot easier if we had, for some reason, had a bucket in our attic. And two of the dogs were moving around. They weren't holding still. They weren't settling. And we were concerned that if we just, you know, picked a corner to use as a bathroom, the dogs were going to go over there and do what dogs do. And then they were going to come back and want to crawl into our lap. And we were reasonably clean and dry at that point. So we were basically just hanging over the access to the attic that was full of water, our closet, and using that as a bathroom. You never expect yourself to be in that position. No, no, you really don't plan for that one. And how high was the water at that point? The water, we watched it inch up the ladder after we got into the attic. We'd check it every now and again, and that was kind of what we were marking the height was the attic ladder. Okay, we lost another step. Okay, we lost another step. It stopped six inches, six inches from the attic access. The house was full of water. It was really dark and really loud and all you kept hearing was the roof creaking and you were waiting any second for the roof to pull off. I was waiting for a tornado or water spout to come through the middle of the hurricane and pull the entire roof off and take us with it. And just sat in the darkness, not able to reach out to Catherine because the stability of our where we're sitting is separated and we'd talk to each other every now and again. But it was, are you okay? Is Hazel okay? Is the dog okay? It was just a, we're still in survival. There's no conversation about, oh, I wonder what it looks like down there, or I wonder what we're going to do after. It was just, please don't let the roof fall off. And that was kind of your mantra throughout the night, right? How did you, how did you use that mentally? Mentally, it was the only thing I could focus on. There, there wasn't anything else. It was the blackness and please let the roof hold. Hold my breath. Listen to the wind. Please let the roof hold. Feel the wood that I'm leaning against cracking and moving with the wind. Please let the roof hold for the entire night. Would you call that a prayer of sorts? It wasn't spoken to anyone. It wasn't spoken to a Christian god, uh, anyone else's you know, preferred religious deity. It was just the same words over and over and over again. It wasn't it wasn't praying to anyone specific. It was just that was what my brain was focusing on, that hope. So did you sleep at all? 
I close my eyes for 30 seconds at a time. And as soon as I would, as soon as my body would decide it's going to shut down, I can't do it. I can't do this anymore. You have to sleep. Then something would hit the roof or the wind would pick up and it would howl and the bracing, the wooden bracing would creak and I could feel it moving against my back. And then I'd be awake again. Hazel slept for eight hours. She woke up at one point in the middle of the night and kind of screamed, called out, uh, dreaming of what was actually happening. I'm sure she settled pretty quickly. Catherine was able to reach out to her and kind of stroke her leg and it's okay. You can go back to sleep. Catherine didn't sleep. I'm thinking of being in your position. It almost seems like you could be a little bit envious of Hazel with her mindset. Hey, my moms are in charge. I'm not going to worry about anything. I can go to sleep, (laughs) but but you didn't have that option. No, I didn't have that option. I, I had the, I need to be awake in case the roof comes off and I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do if that happens, but I need to be awake for that. Right. Yeah. Cause if that, if the roof goes, uh, what do you even do then? M- my mind never solved that problem. I never came up with a plan for what I was going to do if that happened. There wasn't one. Just before the sun came up and Hazel woke up and she's rested, right? She's, she's ready to go. <laughs> the rest of us, not so much. We were able to shine the flashlight again. At this point, it was like you kind of I had to smack it a couple of times, you know, when you're trying to make the batteries work to get it to turn on. We were able to shine the light and we looked down into the, the water below and realized that it had gone down a couple of inches. So that's 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 the aha moment. That means it's so that means it's gonna be over. That means it's leaving. The hurricane is leaving. We made it through the night. It's almost sunrise. The hurricane is leaving. We're alive. We're going to be okay. And then the sun came up and we got some more light. We didn't need the flashlight anymore. And we were able to just sit and stare at the attic hole and watch the water very slowly go down. It was an inch and then it was two inches. And look, we can see the ladder that we haven't been able to see before. And okay, there's two steps. Okay, now there's three. Hours of just sitting and watching the water move very slowly down. By uh, noon on uh, September 3rd, so it was the day after, almost full 20, was a full 24 hours in the attic. The water receded enough that we could get down into the house. We still had about ankle high water when we came out of the attic. Set the dogs and Hazel up on the same bed that was no longer floating because there was broken glass everywhere. We were terrified someone was going to get cut or slip and break a leg. And we kind of stepped out into our living room and it looked like a washing machine had gone on in the house for 24 hours because that's exactly what had happened. Everything was broken. Everything was smashed. Everything was covered in seaweed and ocean mud and sewage and nothing looked salvageable. We'll have pictures of these of this in the... Who took those pictures anyway? I mean, you guys are thinking about taking pictures during this? Catherine took pictures the entire time. From the beginning, we have, we have the, entire, the entire process documented. For Catherine, Catherine's an artist. She sees the world visually. And the photographs started with, oh, we're going to document this for insurance purposes. Look, there's water in the house. There's a picture of that. It helps when you file insurance claims. 
then it turned into, we're going to take pictures so that we can show everyone what happened to us after. And then it became, this might be the only thing someone finds of us. How did anyone know to come and rescue you? We had been making phone calls to friends and family. We had told Charlotte and Patty back in Connecticut that we obviously we needed help, but there wasn't anybody that could come. So we were on that these people need help list, which had been forming throughout the storm. Uh, we had posted a Facebook post with SOS help the day before. But when we, when we had been out of the attic only about 20 minutes, we turned and heard a noise and there was somebody in full wetsuit gear, fins and mask on our back porch. He magically appeared out of nowhere. How did you swim here? Turns out it was a friend of ours who was part of the volunteer rescue folks on the island. The actual staged sort of governmental rescues hadn't begun. It was still blowing 90 mile an hour. These guys were risking their lives to be out in the storm. We were the first ones they came to. Because of knowing that we were stranded with a young child and no one had heard from us for 24 hours. He showed up in a boat. He had two guys in the boat. He swam from from the canal area. So we, our house was actually on a, a saltwater canal. The island of Grand Bahama is full of saltwater canals. But of course... The water was surrounding the entire neighborhood. Like you couldn't see where there was a canal. It was all ocean. You could just see the houses, tip tops of trees. Um, but this friend of ours had been to our property before and he knew where there were obstructions and where there was a wall. And no, the boat can't come past this point because it will get wrecked. So that was helpful. And he said, you know, do you guys want to go? Well, what about the dogs? Can, can the dogs come? We're not leaving the dogs. We're not leaving if we can't carry the dogs. Of course the dogs can come. Okay, great. Let's go. And the boat was big enough for all of you and the dogs? It was big enough for all of us. And still, still a small boat that shouldn't have been out in that kind of weather. 23-foot open center console kind of boat, outboard engines. So he swam a couple of the dogs out from the house to the boat, came back for us. There was um, issues with the boat. The boat's bilge pump that's supposed to pump the water out of the boat was failing in 90 mile an hour winds while they're trying to rescue us. So it was, it was very touch and go. We were taken a few miles away to a Grand Bahama Sailing Club, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a sailing school, but it was in a part of the island that did not have the flooding that our part had and was still safe and intact. It wasn't a shelter, but it was their staging area. We were indoors. The, um, the club manager fed us, gave us dry clothes, made sure we were okay. Here's my cell phone. It is working. Call whoever you need to call. The, the service was terrible. You would call someone and get every fifth word. We call Charlotte and Patty first. We're okay. We've been rescued. We're safe. We're alive. No one's hurt. Somehow we managed to do all of that and come away with bruises and a skin rash. Any infections from floating in sewage water? After we were evacuated, we saw a doctor who checked all of us out. We had bruises and a skin rash. That was it. We were at the sailing club for a couple of hours. From there, we 
piled into the front cab of a truck. <laughs> that was another experience. Uh, how do you put four adults, a child, and five dogs in a single cab truck? <laughs> they gave us a lift to uh, an acquaintance house who was he was house sitting for an expat really big house empty except for he and his wife their kids another family and so you guys can come here bring the dogs it's fine so that's where we went that sounds like the perfect destination at that point it was the best possible scenario we we as i've said shelters on the island wouldn't have allowed dogs we couldn't go to a shelter some of the shelters were underwater at that point, driving around was still dangerous. There was still lots of water standing. So yeah, it was it was the best possible place we could be. We were at the house with those acquaintances for two days. And I'm sure sometime during those that two-day period, you're thinking, okay, what are we going to do? Where are we going to live? Yeah, all of that. Yeah, all of that. We uh, We managed to go back to the house the day after our rescue. Storm was gone, winds were done, most of the water had actually disappeared, gone back to the ocean. So we were able to go back to the house and try to salvage something. When you first got to your house and you're just and you just before you go in, I mean, did it look like it was destroyed or what did it look like from the outside? The the exterior of the house looked like the exterior of the house. There was a a, a seaweed line where the water had stopped up near the roof. All of the windows were intact. The roof was intact. The walls were intact. If you looked at the house, all you saw was some organic debris and a whole lot of mud. It looked fine from the outside. The inside, not so much. Everything was covered in in mud. 24 hours of tropical post-hurricane air mixed with wet. Everything was growing mold already, 24 hours. The inside sheetrock walls were torn torn apart. You could see through this to the studs. We can see from one room to another where there should have been a wall. Furniture was moved from one side of the house to the other. Everything's piled on top of each other. Things are broken. It's just looks like a bomb went off on the inside. Structurally, we had a feeling that it wasn't fixable. The reason being that during the storm, we actually saw bubbles bubbling up through our foundation, which means the foundation's cracked. In the end, weeks, months later, structural engineers inspected the house and said it was not salvageable, couldn't be lived in ever again. I assume you had home insurance to cover this. We had full hurricane insurance on our home. We were... Some of the lucky ones, a lot of people lost everything and had no insurance. So what's your long-term plan at that point? At that point, we evacuated to Florida two days after the storm and um, thought that we would settle there for six months, which was how long as tourists were allowed to stay in the United States. We're Bahamian. We, we have to travel on a visa. We're not allowed to live in the United States but we're allowed to visit vacation for six months. And your passports and visa were dry enough they could they recognized it? We laid all of it out underneath a ceiling fan the next day. All of it dried out. All of our birth certificates, marriage certificates, passports, all of it. So you were in Florida for six months and then what? We weren't in Florida for six months. Oh. A few days after Dorian, there was um, a little blip in the news media of the United States 
that uh, there was fear that all Bahamians affected by Hurricane Dorian were now going to immigrate to the United States illegally. Suddenly, the United States didn't want to let us in. <laughs> so some, some not nice stuff was said by people high up in the government of the United States about Bahamians as a stereotype. We were told, okay, you guys have two months. You, you need to be out of this country in two months. Don't care where you go, but you need to be out in two months. Okay, now what? We didn't have a house to live in. Grand Bahama is a disaster zone. There's no electricity. Fresh water is an issue. It's horribly traumatic to think about going back there and looking at all of that every day after having lived it. We can't stay in the United States more than two months. What are we going to do? Okay, let's move to another country. Because, you know, that's the best thing to do when you're suffering with PTSD after trauma. Yeah. And that's where you are now, right? And that's, where are that's you? where we are now. We live in uh, New Brunswick, Canada. We left Florida six weeks after Hurricane Dorian and drove to Canada. And that was almost four years ago now. How do you like Canada? I'm just thinking the, the one extreme to the other, the tropical Bahamas to the snowy, cold north. It's a very different life. We've traded hurricanes for snowstorms, which really is the motivating factor. We're not, we're not doing hurricanes ever again. I'm never going to be in the path of a hurricane again, if I can help it. And snowstorms blow through and you hunker down for six hours and then you go outside and you shovel snow and it's, go and it's over. <laughs> and you're really, there, it's, it's almost easier to prepare for a snowstorm because you know what's going to happen, even if it's a big one. Mm -hmm. It's predictable. Much, much more predictable than hurricanes. But where you are, you're still close to the ocean, right? Was there, what was your logic behind that? So we all but threw a dart at a map. We, uh, we said Canada because it's an open-minded place that's welcoming to LGBTQ families and people. There's an uh, immigration pathway for us. We can, we can immigrate here legally. We needed to be near the ocean, even though the ocean tried to kill us. We needed to be near the ocean. It's a part of our souls. It's a part of who we are. We couldn't live in Toronto or Alberta. So we said East Coast. We wanted to be near our family in Connecticut. We wanted to be driving distance. Eight hours drive from our door to theirs. So we just we said, okay, that's, that's where we're going to go. That's what we'll try and see if it works. And fortunately, you were in the position where you had the money from the insurance that you could, you know, you could get into another house and... And not have to worry about putting food on the table immediately. Yep. Yeah. We were, we're very blessed with that, that we were, we had that ability to restart. A lot of people might have chosen to leave, but didn't have the ability to restart. How has Hazel adapted to this new environment? We joke all the time that she's now Canadian. <laughs> and she was born in the U.S., right? She was born in the U.S., grew up in the Bahamas, and she's now Canadian because <laughs> she's adapted so well to all of it um we've all had therapy hazel had uh had had play therapy kids therapy where you use games and drawings to help them sort out their feelings surrounding trauma that could scar her for the rest of her life she has lots of friends she loves to play in the snow and we're good here obviously this was very clearly a near-death experience because if you'd stayed in the bedroom you wouldn't have survived. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about your mental health following this ordeal? How have you handled that? 
the three of us have all had mental health issues. Hazel has rebounded fastest. We do, we talk a lot about the storm. We talk about the Bahamas. We still call the Bahamas home. And so that's been really good for her. And it's been really good for us because it's forcing us to address it. I've done more therapy and more therapy options than I can count at this point over the last four years. PTSD has been an issue. Depression has been an issue. Uh, some people with PTSD have ADD symptoms. That's been an issue. You're four years past now. You feel like you're, you've, you've overcome it or you're still in the process? I feel like I've overcome it. I feel like there are scars. So I've gotten over the worst of it. I've processed it. I used writing therapy to process it. My therapist said, oh, you're, you write poetry. Okay, I want you to write about what happened to you. And we'll use that for therapy. And so what started out as I'm going to write down and tell the therapist in words what happened turned into chapters. Those chapters turned into an entire book. That was, that was what I used to process the trauma. And you didn't even know that that would be the end result when you started writing it. No, no, that wasn't, that wasn't the attention, intention. It's one of those dreams in the back of your mind that you never actually get around to doing. Oh, I'm going to write a book one day. I'm going to be published one day. But then you never, you never do it because you don't believe that you can do it well enough or something else comes up. You have a kid, you don't have the time. And so it started, like I said, as pages that turned into chapters that turned into an entire book, two and a half years of writing. And part of that, what you've written is about how climate change has had an, a direct effect on you, right? Is that the majority of what that is? or? But most of the book is the story. Most of the book is who we are, why we were living, where we were living, what happened to us, all of the details of the story I've just given you, but in more detail. But also how we came about to have to make this decision to leave the place of our ancestors and about how for us it's not livable anymore because of climate change. Because I've lived 40 years and I've been through how many hurricanes and my parents only went through this many and their parents only went through one in their entire lifetime. So it's the Bahamas is going to continue to get less livable as climate change gets worse. And when we last spoke previously about this, you were shopping your book around among publishers. Any news on, on that? Uh, no, no, nothing, nothing yet. Um, there, the, the process of getting a book published, if you want to have it published in one of the big publishing houses, let's say I want to have it sitting on a shelf in Barnes and Noble. It's a very specific process. Some of it has to do with luck, being lucky enough to find an, an, a literary agent that's interested in the story that feels like they're connected to the story and want to represent you to shop it around to big publishers. I'm aiming big. <laughs> it's a, it's a big dream, but I'm confident that, that I'll get there. It just takes time. I, I think it has the potential for that. You sent me one chapter and just in reading that, it makes me want to read the whole book because it's very well written. And I mean, you've mentioned that luck is part of this. Hopefully you haven't used up all your luck during that time in the attic. Right? Let's hope I have nine lives. Well, once it does get published, Obviously, we will know about that. We'll put that on the on the website. We'll add that to the episode notes uh, for this 
for this podcast. How can people find out more about you? I am on Instagram and LinkedIn, Tara Pyfram, very easy to find. And my website is tarapyfram.com. And we'll have those links. And um, Tara, I'm glad you survived. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. You can see pictures of the flooded house, and you can also get a full transcript of this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 150. I heard someone mention a term recently, and I thought, wow, this definitely applies to podcasting. This term that caught my attention was active listening, and I really love that. I think a lot of people have this idea that when they're having a conversation with someone, that the person who's talking at the time is active and the person who's listening is passive. And that might be true sometimes, but I think that can also result in a kind of boring conversation. I mean, think about some of the podcasts you listen to. The host talks for a while, then the guest talks, and you can kind of tell that the host isn't really super engaged. They're just waiting for the guest to stop so they can talk again. Some hosts even have a list of questions, and the guest might have an amazing answer to one of them, and the listeners are yelling, hey, ask a follow-up question about that. But the host just continues down the list of questions because they got to complete that list. That's boring to me. I love this idea of active listening because it means the person who's not talking is still completely engaged and just trying to soak in and comprehend what the other person is saying. And in order to be a host who's an active listener, it helps if you have a guest who's really interesting. Well, that's easy for me because all of my guests are interesting. If a guest has a boring story, they're not coming on this podcast anyway. But I think it's a good goal and something we can all definitely improve on, being an active listener. And Raw Audio 35 is now live. If you're not on What Was That Like Plus you're missing out on these bonus exclusive episodes. These are actual 911 calls and the stories that go with them. And you get all the regular episodes of What Was That Like without any ads. You can try it for free. In the Apple Podcasts app, just find the podcast and click on Try Free. Or on Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus. In this raw audio episode, an 8-year-old girl calls 911 and the dispatcher is rather impatient. Um, my mom is in the basement, and um, I need emergency, and I need, hello? Where at? A woman calls after she's given a drugged cupcake as part of a kidnapping attempt. I'm super spacey, like, it's hard to talk, and, like, my hands and my feet and my arms are super numb. And officers are called to a school because one of the students has a gun. Uh, yes, sir, at Cudney's Middle School, we have a student with a gun. Can you help us out, please? We'll call BIC police also. You're closest to us. So now you have 35 raw audio episodes to binge as soon as you sign up at whatwasthatlike.com slash plus on Android. Or on your iPhone, just find the podcast and click on Try Free at the top. And speaking of Apple Podcasts, here's a review that came in recently from user 2010. Captivating, inspiring, and a good variety of unique, real-life experiences. Scott does a great job, plus he has a pleasant voice. My favorite podcast, five stars. 
Thank you so much, 2010. And if you haven't yet left a rating and review, I invite you to do just that. This is part of an experiment. Really, all you have to do is just leave a five-star rating, not necessarily a review. But if you do leave a review, you might hear it here on a future episode. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And the moment you've been waiting for, it's this week's listener story. We do this every single episode. If you have a story, like 5 to 10 minutes, about something unusual or funny or sad, record it on your phone and send it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. This one is from my friend Corey. If you're on TikTok, you should definitely follow her. And her TikTok name is Sugar Bomb Corey, all one word. And she's also in the Facebook group. Super fun person. And her listener story definitely falls into the true crime category. So I think you'll enjoy hearing this. Stay safe, and I'll see you back here in two weeks. I was harassed by a murderer. Basically, it starts out as my husband's story. When my husband was five years old, his dad was a police officer. And what had happened was there was two men, a father and a son. I'm going to call them the old man and the young man for this story. But an old man and a young man had gotten into a fight with their neighbor over an old bicycle, of all things. There had been some sort of an altercation with the neighbor. The police came and arrested the old man. And on his way into jail, he said that he had chest pains and they took him to the hospital. While he was in the hospital, he managed to escape with the help of his son. So the old man and the young man gather up a bunch of guns and basically barricade themselves inside their house. The police there called upon my husband's dad to come help because he had had plenty of run-ins with these guys. They thought maybe that he could talk some sense into them and uh, bring them in to, you know, have them be arrested and... um and no further problems. But that is not what happened, unfortunately. While my husband's dad and his fellow police officer were trying to approach the house, they opened fire on them. Um, There was a shootout. Both the police officers were shot, and my husband's father was killed. Um, It was a tragic, senseless murder very sad. Like I said, my husband was only five years old. He hardly has any memories of his father. But both the father and son, the old man and the young man, were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, The old man died when my husband was in high school. After I got married to my husband, and of course I learned this story, I was curious and I, um, you know, did some research about this case and um, read old news articles and court transcripts, etc., etc. And in looking for this information, I ran across a YouTube channel, and this YouTube channel was hosted by a man who would take phone calls from prisoners who felt that they were unjustly convicted and would basically record these phone conversations and then broadcast them out on the YouTube channel. And and at the time, it was quite a popular YouTube channel with lots of subscribers and lots of comments. And the younger man had made many YouTube videos with this gentleman proclaiming that he was innocent, that he had the right to defend his home and property, 
by shooting the police officers um, and was saying very, very inflammatory things about my husband's family. Um, they were from a very small town where everybody knew everyone, but was saying some really terrible things about my husband's father and his family that were just just untrue. Uh, people have the right to their opinion, but they don't have the right to say things that are just patently false. So I made the mistake of commenting on this YouTube video. Little did I know that I was opening a huge Pandora's box, but this is probably not the last time that my big mouth is going to get me in trouble. It certainly isn't the first either, but I basically just said something about saying this, this is absolutely false. Anybody can look up the court transcripts, their public record, these things that he's saying are not true. That caused a firestorm. There were, a he, he continued to make more YouTube um, videos, really started kind of pointing his ire towards me directly, and then started making some threats made some threats against my husband, against his mother, against his family, and called upon the fans of this YouTube page to find out everything that they could about me. And I ended up being doxxed. And what being doxxed means is that people find all your personal information, where you work, where you live, your phone number, et cetera, et cetera. I ended up getting hundreds of phone calls. I got death threats to my job. It was, it was really scary. I called the prison that he was at and said, certainly there's something that you can do. It turns out they, they, you know, they're allowed to make phone calls. They can call whoever they want and they're not in charge of this, you know, man that runs the YouTube channel. So they really couldn't do much, but they, you know, obviously he's not allowed to make threats against um, his victims and their families. So he was put in the shoe or solitary confinement several times. Finally, I did end up filing a restraining order personally. Once I filed that restraining order, I could not uh, any longer make any sort of comments on the on the YouTube channels. I couldn't try to talk to him directly at all, which of course I didn't. It did simmer things down a little bit when he had gone to the shoe several times and when I made that restraining order, but it certainly didn't stop him. Um, he did continue to call into that show quite often and make some, you know, really thinly veiled, you know, threats against, against our family. But it did finally stop. And the reason why I, I've got some mixed feelings about he ended up getting tongue cancer. So he kept calling in, but he became more and more unintelligible as time went on. The comments really stopped on the videos because people couldn't tell what he was saying. He kept calling in for about a year and finally just stopped because nobody could understand a word that he was saying. So like I said, I've got some complicated feelings about that. But all in all, I guess I would say karma's kind of a you-know-what, so... I don't know. That's my weird story, Scott. Please keep it up on TikTok. Man, you're so fun on there. You are the king of dad jokes and keep it up with the podcast. I think you're great. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon.